1: Everybody's 100% ready, right? Nobody has to brave the malls or do anything like that. Yeah, yeah. I actually went to Kohl's the other day and there was nobody there. I was shocked. I expected it to be an hour and a half trip and it was 15 minutes there and home. Done. So so we're actually finishing our eventually series today, uh, seeing how God has purposely woven into the genealogy of Jesus, how hope, is so present through all the stories of the mothers and fathers of Jesus. It's uh, the genealogies mentioned in Matthew one, and one reason why this genealogy of Jesus is so significant is because it shows the culmination of this long unfolding story, a story that began all the way back with Adam and Eve in the garden. There was a serpent who deceived Adam and Eve, and they ate the forbidden fruit. Sin entered the world, and with that sin, everything became cursed and corrupted. Since then, the ground, our bodies, our relationships have been cursed and have, been, have experienced corruption. Even our relationship with God has been strained and broken. Everything fell apart. But the interesting thing there is God's immediate response to the curse and corruption of, of sin was to make a promise. And that promise in Genesis says, From the offspring of Eve would come someone who would bruise the serpent's head, and the serpent would bruise his heel. So God made a promise that someone's going to come from Eve who would defeat Satan, though it would be at a cost. Sin and evil continue to be pervasive throughout the story of history, and so Genesis 12, God zooms in on a guy named Abraham and says, Abraham, I'm going to bless you, I'm going to make you a great nation, I'm going to, through all uh, through all of your descendants, I'm going to bless the entire earth. And so we fast forward the story even from there, a few weeks ago we looked at some of Abraham's descendants, Judah and Tamar, and and how he redeemed their situation, which was just crazy, and then... He gives this promise that through Judah, a royal line would come. Many generations later, through Judah's lineage, comes King David, the greatest king of Israel. And when we looked at him last week, uh, we saw the promise that was made to him as well, that through his offspring, an eternally enduring kingdom would arise. Through a Messiah, a royal deliverer, a Savior... And so Matthew begins with the genealogy of Jesus, the son of David, the Lion of Judah, a true son of Abraham, and Matthew is telling his primarily Jewish audience that Jesus is a full Israelite, an authentic descendant of David, meaning Jesus has the credentials to be the long-awaited, promised Messiah. He begins his account with this seed of hope. Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called the Christ. And that is the drama of Christmas. Ever since the beginning when sin entered the world and everything was corrupted, we've been longing for things to be made right, waiting for Jesus to defeat death, sin, and sickness. That drama unfolds in the story that begins in this quiet, unassuming, humble manger. After centuries and centuries, the long-awaited blessing of humanity, this royal serpent-crusher Savior has finally come. And today, we look at the last woman in Jesus' genealogy, Mary, his mother. The first one to know that this long-awaited royal serpent-crusher Savior had actually come, that a new day was beginning. Let's look at Luke, which tells us more about gives us a bigger portrait of Mary. It says, In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying, trying to discern what sort of a greeting might this be. St. Augustine poetically describes this event in writing, and he says, Jesus was created of a mother whom he created. He was carried by hands that he formed. He cried in a manger in wordless infancy, he, the word, without whom all human eloquence is mute. Now there's some controversy over what to do with Mary that we experience. For Protestants, if we think a lot about Mary, we get hung up on what we're actually supposed to believe about her and and how we're supposed to see her apply in our lives. And our Catholic friends set Mary apart as someone especially deserving of adoration, even our prayers. In fact, you've got the old joke, right, where this uh, lady goes into the Sistine Chapel, sits down in a pew and and the guy working up in the rafters decides to play a joke, and he goes, hey, this is God, and she doesn't respond. And he says it again, hey, this is God, and she doesn't respond. And he goes, hey, this is God, and she doesn't respond. And finally, she says, shut up, I'm talking to your mother. Right? That's, that's the old joke, right? Sorry, it's a bad joke, but it's an old joke. But what all Christians believe is something very strange. That God chose to come into this world through a woman. And it's Luke that we find this oldest, most universally, most famous Christmas carol of them all referred to as Mary's song, or some people call it the Magnificat. And yet this woman who spoke these magnificent words doesn't fit our stereotypes. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, writing from a Nazi prison on Christmas, wrote that Mary's song is the oldest and the most passionate, revolutionary Advent hymn ever sung. See, in her song, we don't see the gentle, tender, dreamy Mary with sweet and even playful tones that other Christmas carols have. Instead, it's a song that declares this unstoppable plan of God as she prophesies the collapsing of thrones and the humbling of the lords of the world. See, for many of us, when we think of Mary, we don't envision a passionate, hope-carrying revolutionary. But that's exactly what she was. So let's take a different look at Mary. Let's look at her a little more today. As we do, it's it's significant to remember that Mary was the only follower of Jesus who was present at both the manger and at the cross. I think Luke actually wants us to see Mary as the first disciple, the one from whom we can learn so much. And In fact, if you've ever wondered what does real faith look like, I think Mary shows us, even the most cynical person, what a beautiful, winsome faith really is is. So today we're going to kind of explore four of what I think are the biggest lessons Mary teaches us about hope and hope's expression through our active faith. First, Mary shows us that real faith is courageous and persevering. Think about it. It's hard to imagine how terrified and confused Mary would have been when she was approached by the angel. I mean, have you ever even felt in a, in a moment of difficulty and confusion or unknown in your life, God, I, I don't understand what you're doing. Why are you doing this? If you've even felt that, then you just feel just even a tiny glimmer of probably what Mary was feeling. And the most faith-filled, famous words that Mary ever spoke are not in the Magnificat, but in her response to the angel. The angel says to Mary, Don't be afraid, Mary. For you found favor with God, and you will conceive and bear a son and call his name Jesus. And after hearing what she could not possibly understand, I mean, she's a virgin. She's never been with a man. This makes absolutely zero sense. Mary says, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. She follows God's call even when she can't possibly make sense of it. Let it be to me, according to your word. That's what faith looks like. It takes courage to face the unknown with hope and trust. Mary's faith is courageous and perseveres, and yet I'm sure there were times when she questioned, why, why me? I couldn't couldn't possibly be the one to carry the Messiah. I'm, I'm just a kid. From an unknown family. How often do we say those same things about things that we feel like God may be asking us to be or or do in our lives that we say, I'm just a mom. I'm just an accountant. I'm just whatever it is. And Mary's response, I think, is reassuring, reassuring to me and to all of us. She doubted. She asked questions. And actually, her kind of doubt, her kind of question is something that God really welcomes. It wasn't the kind of proud, cynical doubt that keeps truth at bay and doesn't really want to even look at truth. As the story unfolds, God gave Mary an added confirmation from a relative, Elizabeth. Isn't God good when He gives us things that just are hard to stomach? He just always gives us confirmation. She was older, and she was past her childbearing years, yet she was also miraculously pregnant. And so when she goes and visits her, Elizabeth, inspired by the Holy Spirit, tells Mary, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. Why is this granted to me, she says, that the mother of my Lord should come to me, of God should come to me? For behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy, and blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. So Elizabeth Elizabeth says to Mary, you're blessed. I mean, that word blessed us, we just kind of throw it around. I use it a lot, but it probably is kind of this limp, you know, nice, nice thing we say. But in the Hebrew and Greek scriptures, blessed is, is to receive the full shalom. It, it is to bring us back to the full human functioning. To be blessed means to be everything God made you to be. It means that you are strengthened, you are transformed, and not just in your spirit, but in your full being, becoming more of who you were fully created to be. And that experience with, with, with Elizabeth is the confirmation that Mary needs. She sees clearly a most remarkable thing about God. That He is about to change the course of all human history. That the most important three decades in all of time are about to begin. And where is God in all the start of that? God's paying attention to two obscure women. One old and barren, one young who's never been intimate with a man, both now pregnant, miraculously. And Mary is so moved that she breaks out in a song that has come to be known, the Magnificat, which says, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. For he has looked on the humble estate of his servant, for behold, from now on all generations will call me blessed. Blessed. and to his offspring forever. See, Mary recognizes the greatness of the baby in her womb and the greatness of God. As time went on, we see cur- the courage of both Mary and Joseph. Uh, Joseph's faith. Imagine what it would have been like for Mary and Joseph to go to Bethlehem and not finding a place to give birth and question the, all the questions that would bring. Why, why here, Lord? Why in this filthy floor of a cave? Why is this pl- the place where the, the Messiah would be born? Can you imagine the ups and the downs of their emotions as they go through all these questions in the hearts of Mary and Joseph feeling joy and and confusion and, and, and peace and terror and questioning, surely your son deserves better than this. I imagine that both Mary and Joseph doubted their ability to parent or care for the anointed one to feel responsible to raise the hope of the world. What kind of pressure is that? And when Joseph and Mary brought Jesus to the temple about 40 days after his birth, they again experienced a profoundly awe-inducing moment of God. One, you would you would think that when they brought him there, that if anybody was going to recognize the Messiah, it would have been the high priest and the priest, but it wasn't. It was two people who were devout Jews, Simeon and Anna, who both recognized Jesus as the promised one. And God had promised Simeon that he would actually not die, he's very old, that he would not die until he saw the Messiah. Think about that even from that perspective. People have been waiting for centuries for this Messiah to show up. And I don't know if Simeon ever told anybody about the promise that God had made to him before he saw Jesus. But, I mean, if he had, think about what the skeptics would have thought about this guy. He's kind of a little touched in the head believing that, God told him that this that we've been waiting for for hundreds and hundreds of years is going to happen before he dies? I mean, what's with that? And yet when Simeon sees Jesus, the Holy Spirit comes on him, and here's what he says. He says, Lord, now you're letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation that you've prepared in the presence of all the peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for the glory of the people of Israel. And it says Joseph and Mary marveled at what was said about him. And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and the rising of many in Israel, and for a sign that is opposed, and a sword that will pierce your own soul also, so that the thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. This child, the Messiah, will be opposed and rejected. How how could people reject the Savior of the world? He's the greatest hope of all of us. Yet Mary was known to ponder these things in her heart, and she must have wrestled with Simeon's prophecy over the course of her lifetime. A sword would also pierce her very own soul. Can you imagine the confusing, tumultuous thoughts and questions Joseph and Mary must have had? Here's this little boy that they're holding about whom uh, the greatest of all adult feats are being prophesied as well as conflict and rejection. We learn from Mary and Joseph that carrying hope requires this great courage and this perseverance in the face of not only others confusing thoughts and opinions about what's going on in our life, but also in the face of our own thoughts and our own feelings about life. The second lesson we learned from Mary's life in, in seeing, is, is that real faith is personal. And that's how she starts this song. She says, my soul magnifies the Lord. She doesn't say my mouth. She says my, my soul deep down in the core of who I am. You see, when we magnify something, what, what, what are we doing? We don't change it. We magnify something. We make it bigger. We make it clearer in our sight and in the sight of other people. That's what we want to make sure happens here at Quest. We want to make Jesus bigger and clearer for all of us. We want to see Jesus for all of His glory and His beauty, all of His wisdom and His mercy, all of His justice and forgiveness. Mary says, Because I see clearly who you are, my soul magnifies the Lord. And her song continues. It says, My spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. That's personal. When your faith is real, you don't just believe in God. Your spirit rejoices because you're able to see God and encounter God in your own life, in your own experience as your Savior. And that leads us to the simplest definition of faith. Faith. It's not knowing the answers of how things are going to actually look and how they're going to work out. It's but knowing God and trusting God, even when things don't make sense. See, faith is confidence in God, not confidence in your answers. But faith is also not merely persevering and personal. Mary's faith also takes this very public face, which is our... Our third lesson that she gives us. Mary's faith, seen in the Magnificat, is a song of collapsing thrones and humbling the lords of this world. It's very public. Listen listen to what she says. She says, He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their heart. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones. She says, He has filled the hungry with good things and sent the rich away empty. Wouldn't this be quite the song to sing in Columbus, New Albany, Westerville area? The third lesson is that real faith is public faith. This is not comfortable in our world today that keeps trying to reinforce in us that two things we should never talk about with friends or other people, politics and faith. Our culture tries to reinforce that faith is a private matter. It's not what Mary teaches us. It's not what Jesus teaches us either in Matthew 10. He says, whoever denies me before men, I will also deny before my Father who is in heaven. And he's talking about not just active denial, but he's also talking about not acknowledging, not publicly acknowledging our faith. We see this in baptism as well. One of the reasons we celebrate baptism is because Jesus commands us to do it as a public declaration of our faith. Faith is not merely a private f- thing. In fact, private faith is really no faith at all. It's ineffective. It's weak. It's dead. See, the final lesson we learn from the mother of Jesus is, the, I think, the easiest to overlook because it's subtle. We see it in the way Luke tells the story of Mary. Luke highlights every other character in Jesus' birth as having pedigree or lineage. Elizabeth and her husband, Zechariah, come from the priestly families all the way back to Aaron and Moses, the brother of Moses. Mary's soon-to-be husband, Joseph, is in the line of David. These characters have credentials. But when it comes to Mary, such badges of honor are conspicuously absent in Luke's writing. It may very well possibly be that Mary was from the same tribe of Joseph. That was not uncommon to marry within your same tribe, but that isn't explicit. There's nothing said in the text for us to know one way or the other. Mary is a young girl, perhaps 13 or 14. She lives in an insignificant town that was looked down upon by most people, far away from the centers of power. Her family of origin is never mentioned. What seems most significant in the way Luke tells this story is Mary's insignificance. Yet Mary is the one who's given the honor. Greetings, favored one, the Lord is with you. Now we know from Mary's response that she has a good knowledge of Scripture and a deep trust in God that she, that she, she was not favored by God, though because she was perfect by any stretch of the imagination. Mary didn't earn God coming near to her through an angel. The miracle of the first Christmas is this, that we see God comes and makes his home among us in this world, in real flesh and blood world, making his grand entrance in a manger of dirt and manure on the floor to an insignificant little girl from a no-name family from a nothing village. God doesn't choose people based upon position or prestigious lineage or on popularity. He chooses Mary. And he chooses all of us. He chooses Mary who was culturally lower the scale because of her gender, because of her family, because of her lack of possessions, because of where she grew up and Mary ranks very low on the social status and God chooses Mary. Now, this is actually where Catholic and Protestant theology are going to diverge a little bit. Some Catholics believe in the Immaculate conception of Mary, which is easy for us Protestants to actually misunderstand. They are not saying that Mary is like Jesus, who was birthed by God without the help of a male. Immaculate actually means without stain. Though scripture doesn't clearly state this, some Catholics out of reverence for God's holiness believe that Mary also had to be free of original sin in order for Jesus to be free of sin. That the only way a holy God could be conceived in and born of a human Mary was for Mary to be without sin. This is why, for example, you see in Michelangelo's uh, beautiful sculpture of Jesus and Mary that Mary actually looks to be about the same age as Jesus in the sculpture. She was free of sin and therefore free of the curse of sin and to some measure free of the curse on the body so she didn't age like the rest of us. guess she never got gray hair. I don't know. Protestants believe that this belief about Mary's sinlessness actually pushes against the record of Scripture, isn't consistent with it. And we don't even believe that it's consistent with the records of the genealogy. And, and I don't even believe it's consistent logically. If Mary had to be sinless in order for Jesus to be birthed holy and sinless, then Mary's parents would also have had to have been sinless for her to be born sinless, and so on and so forth. All the way back through her generation, there could have been no sin. But we know that's not reality. At least if, if there's any connection with any of the genealogies that are in there, there's there we know there's sin there. See, I think the fact that they weren't sinless, that Mary wasn't sinless, adds beauty and power to the love and grace of God. That the perfect, holy, sinless God loves each of us so much that He comes and identifies closely with us even in our sinfulness. God identifies with you and I and wants to be close to us to save us and put us back in right relationship with God. And that is the ultimate of power and hope and love. See, I think when we elevate Mary or when we separate her from being like the rest of us, we lose the heart of the Christmas story. Mary is a person like every one of us. Mary wasn't sinless. She deserved God's wrath just like every one of us in our sin deserved God's wrath. When we see God's favor as unmerited through this story, even in Mary, it makes God's grace on her that much more staggering in its proportions. Mary shows us the power of someone like you and me who surrenders to God and follows Him. She challenges us to live a life that is more bold and courageous. And she shows us our fourth lesson that real faith finds its identity, finds its right standing with God, finds out who we are in God. We see Mary surrendering to this calling to receive what God says over her, and then she refuses to let the voices inside of her and outside of her define who she is and her purpose in life any different. She allows God's words to define that. She says, let it be to me according to your word. And see, each one of us can do this. We may not have an angel. We may not hear it specifically as she hears it, but we can consent to believe God's Word over our lives. It's not about being impressive or deserving it. It's about the courage to accept God's grace offered to each one of us in His birth and His death of His Son, it's about us accepting the fact that He says if we accept that forgiveness, we are His sons and daughters. We are favored. We have a good purpose for our lives. And believing that more than other things. What Mary makes so special is that she chooses to trust God's Word about who she is rather than what others say about her. And honestly, that takes tremendous courage to believe what God says over you. To believe that more than what your friends say over you, more than what your boss or your parents or or your spouse says about you in an anger, or to believe even more than what your own heart or your own past sin would say about you. To believe God's Word over you more than all of those things. See, this is what I admire most about Mary and Joseph. From the beginning, both had to let go of their reputations. They had to endure all the taunts, the accusations, the gossip, the disappointed, disdaining looks of others who thought all sorts of things about them and, and, and in their minds rightfully thought those things. And as Jesus becomes older and Joseph dies, Mary now stands alone as a widowed mother. And for years, she has held on to this hope for her son to come into his kingdom. Wanting to see him put everything in its rightful place. And after all these years, I think she was probably ready to finally vindicate herself and her son. For people to see the truth and maybe be sorry for the pain they caused her and her family with all the accusations And even further, was it wrong for her to want to see Jesus end oppression and sorrow? Was it wrong to want everyone in Nazareth to know that she had actually spoken the truth, that God had chosen her to give birth to the Messiah, that Jesus was born of God and would one day rule in righteousness and majesty? I don't think it was wrong for her to want those things. She wanted to see God's anointed one on the throne. She wanted the world to be right Again, the way it had been in the Garden of Eden. And yet she spent most of her life being the target of disbelief. Even her own children, Jesus' siblings, didn't believe in who Jesus was until after He rose from the dead. Mary was the continual target of accusations. Carrying hope looks like hanging on. Even when it looks so different than you imagined. Trusting God's promises and His words over your life, even when it looks so different than you imagined. See, I've often thought, why didn't God take Mary out of the picture before Jesus went through the horrific death on the cross? I can't imagine a more difficult thing for a parent. And yet, from the manger to the cross, Mary was there. And this is what it means to carry hope that expresses itself in the faith, in our actions in real and courageous and persevering ways. That is carrying hope in a very personal way, in a very public way, that comes from someone who really trusts that God brings worth and identity to our lives, not anybody else. See, we're going to do a practical application in a moment together from Mary's life. But first, I want us to just pause and I want us to take a moment and put ourselves in Mary's place when the angel first comes to her asking her to do something for God and her response is I'm a servant of the Lord let it be to me as your word says I'm going to trust your word makes no sense but I'm going to trust your word the Holy Spirit stirred in Mary's heart a willingness to be open to whatever God has for her to be and to do we're going to let you listen to a song And I want you to just use this as a moment to connect to the words and pray and maybe answer God the same way Mary did in some of the things he's speaking over your life.
0: Everything inside me cries for order Everything inside me wants to hide Is this shadow an angel or a warrior? If God is pleased with me, why am I so terrified? Someone tell me I am only dreaming Somehow help me see with heaven's eyes and Before my head agrees My heart is on its knees Holy is He Blessed am I Be born I'll hold you in the beginning You will hold me in the end Every moment in the middle Make my heart your Bethlehem Be born in me All this time we've waited for the promise All this time you've waited for my arms Did you wrap yourself inside the unexpected So we might know that love would go that far Be born beginning, you will hold me in the end every moment in the middle make my heart your Bethlehem, be born in me I don't think I'm brave I may never be the only thing my heart a vacancy I'm just a girl nothing we just thank you so much that you are birthing in each one of us more and more of your hope lord we just thank you for your holy spirit that is alive within each one of us lord let whatever you desire that you want to be birthed and more fulfilled in our lives lord we give our hearts to you we want to follow you with full hearts in jesus name amen Thank you for listening to this week's Sermon Audio. If you're loving Quest podcast, let us know on Facebook or Twitter by using the hashtag GoToQuest. For more information on Quest, who we are, what God is doing here, or if you would like to help support Quest financially, please visit us at GoToQuest.org. That's G-O-T-O-Quest.org. Thanks for listening.